Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gastola, and unfortunately, Rania Kalik was unable to join me this week. She's traveling back to Lebanon, and once she's all settled in again after spending some time in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic, listeners know that she was there because she believed it would be easier to ride out the pandemic, but this is going to be a much longer term thing that we all have to deal with in our lives, and she's going back to Lebanon to resume her work, and so once she's settled, we will have more episodes with both of us. I thought for this week, since we didn't have the ability to do a normal show, that I'd share an interview I recorded for my website, shadowproof.com, where I'm managing editor. I had the opportunity to talk with Jen Perelman, who is running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the 16 years she's been uh, a representative in Florida. She's been in Congress for several terms. People who listen to our show probably know her as someone who is a fierce advocate for regime change in Venezuela. She's aligned with the right-wing opposition and supported Juan Guaido. She's a Republican on Latin America. She's definitely beholden to the white rich Venezuelans that are in her district. She's also beholden to a number of corporate interests, which we talk about in this interview. Of course, in 2016, she gained notoriety as the chair of the Democratic National Committee when she resigned days before the Democratic National Convention. As WikiLeaks revealed through the publication of emails that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders, or more accurately, rigged to favor the party's preferred candidate, Hillary Clinton. I present to you this interview. Primary day is still upcoming in August for Jen uh, in the 23rd District of Florida, and we get into a number of issues related to our platform, from policing to dismantling the military-industrial complex to the way in which Democrats function as a corporate party. So here's the interview. The reason that I'm taking on Debbie Wasserman Schultz is really because that's my congressional seat. So it, 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 it's coincidental that it's her, but it, it could be anybody. It's, I have had the same representative for 16 years. And then prior to that, she was our representative in the Florida State House. So She's been there a really long time, and I've been observing her, and I've voted for her before. You know, really, with the exception of 16, she's never been challenged in a primary before. So she's really only been the only option for so many years. But she just takes too much corporate money. Mm -hmm. You know, she is too beholden to special interests, and not just any corporations or any special interests. Like, you can actually see the connection between the policies that we want and them not happening with where she gets her money from, like in every um, Medicare for all. She takes money from big pharma and private insurance, uh, Green New Deal. She takes money from the fossil fuel industry. She takes money from big sugar, uh, criminal justice reform. She takes money from payday lenders, for-profit prisons, you know, it, it's uh, police packs. 
So it's every little thing that matters to not just me. You know, most of the things that I support are populist. Most of the things that we are behind and pushing are what most people want. 72% of the American people want Medicare for all. So these are not um, fringe radical ideas that, you know, she's actually still representing the constituency. No, she's not. She is representing a very small faction of people that are served by corporate interests. So, you know, my background is I actually am a journalism person, first and foremost. I went to college for journalism, and I've always had this sort of investigative kind of uh, sense to me, and I've been the same regarding policy and following the money trail. So the journalism then led to advertising, which regrettably was a few years of whoring myself to corporate interests. But um, eventually I ended up going to law school because I decided I really wanted to get involved in um, policies for nonprofits. I wanted, I actually went to law school to be a lobbyist, which is interesting because we're so anti-lobbyist. And I'm actually not anti-lobbyist. I'm just anti-profit for profit lobbyists. So, mm-hmm. and, and there is a big difference. Like when I went to law school, my thought was I, I happen to be against the death penalty. I've always been against the death penalty. That is one of the few things where I am not where my views are not supported by the majority of people. So I'm not going to say this as a representative. I'm just saying this as, you know, personal. Uh, So I thought I would be a lobbyist for, say, the Innocence Project or, you know, something having to do with criminal justice reform. So I actually really wanted to be a lobbyist. I like policy. Uh, I really did enjoy law school. Coming out of law school, I ended up, because I didn't live in a state capital, and lobbying is hard when you don't, I ended up doing criminal defense for a while and really liking that a lot. So really criminal justice is is a huge issue for me. Just that's what I have the most experience in terms of seeing the disparity in our system. And so that is a huge thing for me. So I'm kind of in a way glad that so many people are jumping on with the police reform and all that, because that to me is the tip of the iceberg for criminal justice reform. And I suppose since we're on it, um, what what does that look like for you? I see that you support de- demilitarizing the police. It it seems like uh, you view reparations as being somehow connected to uh, criminal justice reform. But are there any other things specifically you want to call attention to? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, we have to take the profit motive out of criminal justice, because we have it now at a few different stages, right? So we have profiting at the police level. We actually have policing for profit. Uh, and and it comes in, in lots of different forms, whether it's they're so over-militarized and over-geared because of the profitization by the military-industrial complex and all of the gear and the stuff. And when all you have is a hammer, all you see are nails. So you have a bunch of people geared up ready for combat. And that's what they're doing. So it sets a tone. Uh, We have profitization, whether it's different municipalities um, having different quotas, quotas, whether it's things like, you know, stop and frisk versus citations of any kind. And those things are incentives to harass and patrol and police. So we have that. And then when you get into incarceration, uh, it's all, it's, Florida has the most for-profit facilities of any other state in the country. So there are literally that profit, people that profit per person 
per night in a facility. And it isn't just the facilities, it's all the subcontractors, right? So it's the people that provide the laundry, the transportation, the, the internet service, the, um, every, the, the commissary, all of the different things. And they also then utilize prison labor as basically current slave labor. So again, there's a profit motive to keep people incarcerated. We have more people incarcerated than any country in the world. We uh, represent, I believe it's 5% of the world population, and we incarcerate 25% of the world's incarcerated. So we are the world's largest penal colony. And there, the, the number one reason for that is there's a profit motive. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the big picture is getting rid of the profit motive. All profiteering should be abolished in corrections. I also support the um, legalization of marijuana. And I think that we should be releasing, commuting, and expunging all nonviolent drug offenses. Mm-hmm. They, they, that, that is one of the biggest sources of our over-incarceration, is the over-penalization of nonviolent drug offenses. And a lot of that ties with big pharma. So, like, there's this – it's so hard to look at anything in a bubble, you know, like it's all connected. So, for example, when somebody takes, like my representative – a lot of money from big pharma, chances are they're not going to be for the legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And they're not. <laughs> and she's not. My representative still refers to it as a gateway drug. So, um, and that's one of those that is very populist. Most people strongly support the legalization of marijuana. And most people do not believe that nonviolent drug offenders should be incarcerated. So that's, that's a pretty populist view. So when it comes to um, criminal justice, it leaks over into other areas. You know, whether it's just complete poverty when you're in abject poverty creates a certain level of desperation mm-hmm. or it's the whether or not we're looking at it being contained because uh, big pharma prefers having an opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. They prefer having an opioid epidemic because obviously that's profitable for them. And until they can figure out how to prevent people from growing marijuana, which is really hard to prevent from happening, they can't corner the market on it, which is why we can't have it easily. Now, um, where a lot of the activism is at right now across the country, and I would presume in parts of Florida as well, is to uh, address some of these areas where uh, we might not actually need the police to be involved. Are, are you supportive of, of, of that effort of, of saying that maybe we've been too reliant on police for solving problems? A hundred percent. I mean, that that first that has to happen. And, you know, the term defund the police, it's kind of a scary term for people, which is why I'm not a big fan of using that. Like phrasing matters. It Mm -hmm. matters in terms of if you want to advance a good policy agenda, how you package it matters. We absolutely need to demilitarize. And when we say defund, it's more like how we defund schools. It's not that we're getting rid of them entirely. It's that we're just not prioritizing it like we like we have in the past. So I do support deprioritizing, and that does mean taking funds away from the police. It doesn't mean that there is no law enforcement. It means mm-hmm. that most of the things that can be handled without police intervention need to be handled without police intervention. Like there's a huge category of stuff, whether it's social services or, or mental health. There are things that can be brought to in that would be infinitely better for our communities than patrolling police. 
Uh, I always do like to say this. I have this thought that we should be actually spending our police money in solving and closing the cases that are just – there's so many that are open, whether it's untested rape kits. Un- we have certain crimes that have lower than a 20 percent um, close rate. So I don't mind spending money on law enforcement to actually be doing those things. I, I do like the idea of having law enforcement investigating um, and closing open cases and certainly violent cases, but we don't need money patrolling and policing our streets. And I think that that's, there is a distinction that needs to be made there. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. one that I try to do that because people think that if you say defund the police, we're just going to have anarchy. Yeah. And no, of course not. There, there's always going to have to be some element of people that sadly are armed to maintain some peace. Uh, you, you have to. I mean, that's otherwise it is anarchy. But the police do not need to be our first line of defense for every problem. Yeah. Well, and then I wonder how you feel about the the scare because so this is your position and I the, the scare tactic would be to say that uh, if we did it your way, it would be a recipe for allowing rapes and, and murders. But but actually, right now, it doesn't seem that police do that much to prevent and or to actually close those cases, especially in vulnerable communities. Oh, exactly. That's my whole point there. You know, you have legitimate crimes happening and I those are the things that warrant the attention of law enforcement, not this. What campaign zero? Are you familiar with campaign zero? Yes. Okay. so what they refer to as broken windows policing, right? Like that whole genre needs to just go away. Mm -hmm. We don't need people patrolling our daily lives and activities. We don't. And yes, there should be laws, and yes, people are going to break them. But for the most part, if it's a not violent thing and it doesn't involve hurting people, we really don't need to be patrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do need law enforcement. Yes, if somebody breaks into someone's house and rapes them, yes, I would like that addressed by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So when we say defund, yes, it's a scare tactic, and that concerns me because it's misleading. And it, you know, sort of when Bernie came out and said he's a democratic socialist when he isn't. And now we're all using that phrase and everybody's so anti-socialism and they're not even real socialists. Mm-hmm. They're social democrats, right? So, you know, it, it would be one thing if it was legitimate and that's what you actually meant. But when it's hyperbolic, which that's what it is, when you when, when people hear defund the police, that's what they're thinking. I'm saying and I, I just like to be very clear. And so the reason I don't full out in my policies say defund the police is because it will get misread, misinterpreted, and used wrong. So I, I just say demilitarization, and then I like to um, actually address this like we are with context and nuance. Yeah, yeah. Although I suppose um, I was going to just go down the line and ask you a couple questions about issues, but while we're on it, I think an important thing to get to with you is to, to just say it seems like that's not uh, – there's not a – so let me back to the, the – as you describe them, the 28-year establishment that backs Debbie Wasserman Schultz, it's uh, – they're very disingenuous. They don't really allow for that kind of discussion and, and it, it does seem like uh, you do – you know, if, if it wasn't the case that they were the ones that you had to contend with, then you might be able to 
honestly and openly engage the issue of defunding the police, but you do have to be very guarded because they're so opportunistic and disingenuous. Yes. yes. They'll use every opportunity and fear works excellent, you know? So I do have to avoid certain things and I do the best I can as talking to people like you and, and people that are, are, our people and on the left and our progressive people to make them clear these I'm not doing it as weaselly wiggly words I will tell you flat out exactly how I feel but when you give the other side bullet points it Mm -hmm. hurts our effort so uh let me ask you uh it it does seem like we need people like you and other representatives to continue to push Medicare for all into the conversation uh, I, I've been stunned by the, you know, m- my feeling is, uh, it depends on how harsh you want to be, but if we're going to be as charitable as possible, we'll, we'll say a hugely missed opportunity thus far in 2020 to make Medicare for all the main thing because of the impact of COVID-19 and everything we're seeing about the lack of public health infrastructure that we have, uh, it it just leads me to wonder what's going on as far as leadership because this looks like the way that you could solve a lot of problems. Well, it proves that they're not really interested in solving problems. I mm-hmm. I for let me tell you I'm thankful for Trump for the main main reason as he is facilitating the revolution, which I knew he would, and that more people are paying attention. And it's the same thing because what's happening now because of things like COVID is it's sort of more and more people are being able to see the man behind the curtain and see that they don't really give a crap. It's not like they don't understand how it works and how we're going to pay for it. They understand that it's all possible. They completely understand that we could have Medicare for all. This isn't rocket science. They're choosing to not do it because they're serving at the behest of corporate overlords. And we know this. And the fact that we are seeing how horribly um, inept our system is and, and that they're not doing anything but continuing to give money and stimulus to corporations, it's really they're losing the ability to hide behind circumstance. Mm-hmm. You know, more and more people are realizing, wait a minute, maybe having my ins- my health care tied to my employment isn't a good idea now that I'm unemployed. Right. So more and more people are getting a taste of how backwards we actually are. In many cases, this is sort of like a banana republic. I we are so far behind in terms of how we treat our people and what we've created. We have all grown to just accept this. And just sit there and fight each other for scraps. Mm-hmm. And then and then buy into this talking point of, oh, you don't deserve anything for free. And I have to tell the people all the time, it's not free. We're paying for it. That's ours. It's not a gift. <laughs> That's ours. Why does my representative get health insurance and mm-hmm. great health insurance? So she gets amazing health care to deal with her breast cancer, which she loves playing the breast cancer survivor card. But yet she doesn't think the rest of us should have that. What other business do your employees get health insurance but tell you you don't get it? Mm-hmm. It's infuriating. Yeah. So let me ask you. Um, so one thing that really stands out, though, is uh, you know you'll 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 get from opponents that they don't really want government involved in their health care, and they it, you know they've been primed 
to fear this idea of government officials being involved in that decision making and and you know both of us know that that comes from the profit tiers who are involved in the insurance industry and and people who are representatives for them and these lobbyists uh but i think one of the huge things that we've seen on display is that people don't like the idea of contact tracing right now to to track and figure out who has this virus and it would go a long way towards uh, ending the spread and probably preventing spikes in this wave of the pandemic. But yet people are afraid that the government's going to be invading and intruding on their lives. And some of that you do have to acknowledge 10 to 15 percent of that comes from a place of of knowing some things in our history where government has been violating our privacy. So how do you how do you navigate the, the this this dynamic? I think that, you know, the, I, you know what, I blame Bill Clinton in the 1996 Telecommunications Act because it's, you know, 90% of our information comes from six for-profit companies that have a very vested interest in sort of steering the narrative and creating the fear where they want fear and not where it should be. So, you know, it is hard because you know, you're having to explain to people, yeah, there is a certain amount of government involvement with that, but it's for the better good versus uh, this Congress just extended the Patriot Act, which we don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. So like there are so many different ways in which our privacy is constantly being eroded and invaded and that aren't for the public good. And this is a case where it is for the public good. And there are, I mean, I understand that there is concern and it is somewhat valid. But I think what, the, what, what it really comes down to is people have to see it's a cost-benefit analysis like everything else. And it's, they just don't get that right information. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think th- the best way to handle COVID is to look at the countries that have had the best success and do what they did. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, like I said, this isn't rocket science. It's anything else. You're going to look at who had the best outcome and do a, what they did. It's really not complicated. So if that involves, you know, contact tracing, then yes, we should do that. The purpose of it isn't to dig into our personal history. The purpose of it is to stop a pandemic. So, you know, I I think that it just needs to be packaged and sold properly, which is hard to do given our media. Yeah. And, and, you know, the way into that was just, I'm interested in this thing of like people really believing that the government um, is is bad and, and inherently corrupt. And it seems like one of the uh, things that the Republicans have successfully managed to do without opposition from Democrats is you'll really destroy this idea that we could ever trust the government to meaningfully provide these services, which um, is obviously intentional because they'd rather we get that from corporations. Right. Well, and that's where you see that we don't we don't really have two parties. We really only have one party. I, I this is something I address a lot because I think it's important. We're all on the left kind of talking about how to get a third party, how to where do the progressives go from here? Is it the Greens? Is it the, the Democratic Socialists? You know, where do we get a third party? And I would argue we don't even have a second party. Mm-hmm. There is no labor party in this country. None. We have two corporate parties. So when you have two corporate parties, all you are getting is a corporate narrative. There is no other narrative. And that's that's on both of them. 
it's a fiction. There, it's the, the, there's no two parties anymore. So amid all of this, you've got the urgency of, uh, of the, the, the climate emergency. Why don't you speak on that? Because, I mean, not to tokenize <laughs> you, but you come from Florida. And so it's just common uh, conventional wisdom that uh, because of what is going to probably happen to Florida, that you have to take this seriously. Although uh, it doesn't seem like that animates Debbie Wasserman Schultz all that much. I mean, we still see very weak proposals from her brand of Democrats. They are not interested. She takes money from uh, Florida Power and Light, fossil fuel, big sugar. So her interests are not served by addressing the climate crisis or even not even just climate crisis, but environment in terms of, you know, the water toxicity, because Mm -hmm. some of the stuff that we're dealing with here isn't climate. It's industrial agriculture. It's affecting our environment and our ecology. But so we've got a few different major problems in Florida. Uh, I know that it, everyone thinks of, you know, sea level rise and we're going to be underwater. And that is true. That, will, I mean, will inevitably happen. But it, a more sort of insidious problem is as the salt water comes up under the limestone, it infiltrates our drinking water. Mm. So, it, yes, the shoreline erosion is an issue, but it's also a problem with our drinking water. And then you add to that that we allow for industrial agriculture to pollute our Everglades to the point where our blue-green algae and our red tide are so bad over the past few years that even before COVID, our tourism industry has been taking huge hits. When you've got, you know, a certain amount of red tide is a natural occurrence, but it cleans itself and it moves on, right? But when you have it so exacerbated by our runoff from the um, industrial waste, it lasts and lasts and lasts. So there are full seasons where nobody's going to the beaches because all they see are dead fish washing up. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge economic impact in Florida as well. It isn't just, you know, oh, save the manatees, although that is very important. But no, I have not seen a single congressional representative in the South Florida contingency uh, or anywhere in Florida, really taking up this real this mantle of climate crisis and really taking the initiative with it you do see them on occasion signing on to whatever the more status quo you know allotment of you know give a crap is to the climate crisis but there no one's being aggressive and nobody's taking initiative i don't understand why in florida we're actually still building buildings that don't automatically have solar on the roof mm-hmm. what there's no reason for that other than it's not profitable for the people that want to make the profits and that are running our representatives. So there's so many things that we could and should be doing in Florida. We allow developers on a local level. Now, this is more of a local, not a federal thing, but at a local level, developers basically buy off commissioners. And so they can just sort of keep developing and they don't have to repair and, and help build up the infrastructure that is going to be needed to accommodate all of these new developments. So, for example, they just dredged sea grapes and mangroves out of Fort Lauderdale, pulled them out to build for a 100-yacht marina. This is a 100-yacht marina. So this is something that's going to benefit how which percentage of people, right? So they are supposed to be forced to then revegetate that vegetation to, a you know, 
I don't know how far they can do it or where they have to do it, but they're supposed to be putting sea grapes and mangroves and you have to be building it back up in places, sort of like dig a tree, plant a tree, mm -hmm. okay, like cut a tree, plant, and they're not. And those are the things that keep our water clean and keep our estuaries functioning. When you do that, it, the ripple effect is unbelievable. And yet nobody's standing up for them. Nobody's fighting about that. Nobody at a local level, nobody at the federal level. They just, nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. Nobody's even bringing attention to it. Imagine if Debbie Wasserman Schultz cared enough to at least bring attention to that this was going on. Use the platform to just bring attention to it. Yeah. You know, you might not be able to do anything from a policy standpoint because it's a local, you know, it's a county thing, right? But something, use your power to do something. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, I mean, but even then, it's been really weak. I mean, how hard was it even to get offshore drilling to stop nearby Florida, right? So it just... Well, I mean, she still hasn't... I mean, I think maybe this past year she finally conceded that fracking isn't good. But, um, no, she walks as close... She does the bare minimum regarding the environment that she needs to do to be able to basically say she's a Democrat, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, the bare minimum. And anybody who really follows the numbers and the, the money trail with her knows that it's completely disingenuous. Can you uh, say anything about – well, OK. So um, I should ask this because uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is – you know, I, I, I don't see her as being meaningfully different from like let's say Elliot Engel who just lost as far as uh, foreign policy goes. She's pretty hawkish. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you um, – you know, I, where do you plant your, yourself? I mean, are, are you basically in the camp of, of where Bernie Sanders and, and all of his campaign was and just saying, you know, we need to do less investing in war abroad. We need to bring those resources home and fund people here. Absolutely. I'm, I'm more in the Tulsi Gabbard, I'm tired of these regime change wars. Okay. And, and that it's, it is a disservice to our service people. It's actually offensive. They're being used as profit pawns, which there's no, and then, and then they wave this flag and this banner of support the troops. And it's like, yeah, we're trying to support them. We're trying to respect their, that they do what they do to help people and not to make profit. But I'm against our intervention in other sovereign nations. Mm -hmm. I think short of a genocide, it's really not our business. And then even then, it's more of a world that has to come together. It isn't us. We are not the police of the world. And so I do not support um, an imperialist agenda. I do not support American exceptionalism. I, I don't support any of that. I don't support propping up nations that are rife with human rights violations. Uh -huh. uh, I don't, that's just not, I don't support illegal sanctions. Those are illegal acts of war. What we're doing in Venezuela, what we're doing in Iran, those that I don't support any of that. So let me ask you, and I think this is a, a, a crucial thing to ask because uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and uh, Donna Shalala, and there's a couple other people in Florida consciously <laughs> use Venezuela to try and attack and drag down uh, progressives and, and to make it harder, I think, to expand public programs. Um, they fear monger about Venezuela. I think they are 
playing upon people's ignorance of the issues there, which is, let's face it, we're Americans, not Venezuelans. We can't know what's happening in that country more than we know what's happening here. So um, how do you navigate that? Because I think um, they are really they're, – they're, they're not really that much different from Donald Trump because Donald Trump is also making people fearful that the country that U.S. could turn into – Venezuela, if we're electing people like you, um, and obviously that's just to stop progressive programs from expanding. I do the best I can to um, deprogram people in terms of when they say you're going to be a socialist like Venezuela and Cuba, and I'm like, no. And again, this is where the phrasing really matters. This is why from the beginning we should have been calling it a social democracy because that's really what we are proposing. And so I do the best I can to re-educate people. And I say, look, the problems in Venezuela and Cuba are not because of socialism. It's because of authoritarianism and not, and also because of our interference in sanctions and things that are basically suffocating their economy. But it isn't because of a social democratic system. And I do the best I can to, to deprogram people. But Debbie is just an example of one of many corporate Democrats that are essentially on this issue, it's Republican. You know, she supports this, you know, who we decided, this Juan Guaido, that we tweeted is the new leader of Venezuela, which is the most absurd um, I, American exceptionalist thing. To, it's It disgusts me. Mm -hmm. that that even happened. It disgusts me. And I'm not making a personal statement on Maduro one way or another. I really am not. I'm not a fan. I'm not a, but that was a democratically elected person. Yes. And the only people that don't recognize that that is so are the people that are pushing their different agenda. Now, according to international, um, what, what were considered fair elections, their elections were more fair than ours. Mm -hmm. So, so, that's their elected leader, whether or not I agree with it. Now, the people to whom Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Shalala and the people that are stateside when they're all, you know, anti-Maduro and trying to um, put Guaido in, <clears throat> they are completely sucking up to and playing into the wealthy white Venezuelans that reside in South Florida. And that is a pretty large contingency of people. So when Debbie, a huge part of who she's answering to are the wealthy white, they call them Westinsuelans, because it's people, Venezuelans in Weston. And the problem with that is that's a very small niche of Venezuelans. It's sort of like their top 1%. Yes. So, right. So when you go to um, people that are not the rich white Venezuelans, but are just your regular average, you know, working class Venezuelans, they support Maduro. And, and that's really what, what matters to me. I mean, it's just, it's, he's not committing a genocide, like I said earlier. So it's not something that warrants our interference. And Debbie, look, she stood in front of the Venezuelan embassy with Mario Diaz Balart. Um, and, you know, was standing there and talking about getting rid of Maduro and bringing in Guaido. So I don't see how that's not Republican. And yeah. I just, it's crazy. Well, and I think the most critical issue at the moment is that our own interference would leave a country, and I would apply this across the board to any country in the world, but I wonder what you have to say to people who would allow a country to be uh, defenseless and have a harder time in responding to a pandemic, because that's what our sanctions have done to uh, 
uh, back to Venezuela. And, and Iran. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's where it's, we, we are the war criminals. We are the big, we are the bullies of the world. And it's, it's gross. I, I find it illegal acts of war uh, and illegal wars because these are not wars that we've approved. Mm-hmm. So it's, there are so many different levels of where this is um, really authoritarian, fascist on our part, in that most people do not support this. And even worse, most people aren't even aware that it's happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you have a rogue government like ours, which is essentially what it is, we're, we're the rogue nation in the world. And you essentially have a rogue executive branch and a legislative branch that has allowed itself to be completely castrated, basically chasing after it and, you know, cleaning up after it. It's just not boding well for us. So I'll start wrapping, but I want to ask you about the uh, running in this primary. Uh, what, What has that been like with you? And I suppose specifically what I what I'm getting to is uh, your challenging an incumbent which which means that um i i presume you're facing a uneven uh playing field in that the 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 party is privileging debbie every step of the way and i'm wondering if you can speak to what that's like because i think most people who are average citizens would probably object to ways that the party and others throw up obstacles so that you could run for office. I've been using this whole process sort of as a way to um, expose the disgusting underbelly of the process. I sort of fancy myself the whistleblower. Like I told you, I was a journalist in the beginning. So I've been every step of the way with this. I truly do see myself as somebody um, that's, almost in here as an investigative, I do feel like I'm, I'm really kind of seeing it from the inside and I'm exposing it every single thing that I can. And yeah, well, what my local, the local Democrat or even our state party is very highly connected to Debbie. There's no doubt about it. She's very powerful there. A lot of them are scared of her, but the thing about the democratic party in Florida is they're fairly feckless. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're talking about a state that out of 60 something counties, I think there's only six that are blue. So, so it's, it's, they're pretty, um, they're a feckless party. Our, our DEC in Broward hasn't made quorum in like four years. Hmm. So they're, they're, they're pretty weak. So yes, they do back her, but their way of addressing it is if you came down here right now and got onto one of their zoom meetings you wouldn't even know that there was a congressional race. They're just completely ghosting the whole race. So they're doing forums for sheriff, state attorney, public defender, clerk of court. They're doing all these different types of things with the candidates, and they are not even addressing that there's a congressional race, a primary in 23. Uh It's just not even existent. It's ghosted. And I'm sure that, you know, she doesn't want to debate me or sit in a room with me or do She can't. She can't. She has no policies. She's just a bunch of empty platitudes. And, you know, they protect her by keeping it so that she doesn't have to do anything. And the way to do that is pretend there's no race. Well, uh, so uh, I'll let you add anything conclusive uh, and conclusion that you might want to. But but where I'll end is to say 
you know, one, it does seem people are seeing these representatives who have been in Congress for 14 and 16 or how many ever terms they've been. They're looking at these as like lifetime jobs that they can or careers that they can have in Congress. Um, but that's not to their credit. They don't see anything getting done. Actually, I think most Americans would feel like the fact that they've been there that long is a negative because of how much people despise the <laughs> Congress typically. And and so combined with that, I I ask you, we we've we've had this, uh, and, and this goes towards the issue of deprogramming people. We've had this, especially among progressives, I would say, um, or just you know the Democratic voter base. We've had this idea planted in our mind that somehow tough primaries are going to divide and make it harder for people to compete against Republicans in a general election. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel about that, because it seems to devalue democracy, this, the, the idea that you can't challenge each other on policies. I'm not suggesting that like you engage in character assassination and, and go around and spread rumors about Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but like that you actually challenge her policies is seen as somehow poisonous and, and, and venomous now. Ridiculously so. Now, we've essentially been running two different campaigns this whole time because we've got our in-district campaign and we have our out-of-district campaign. Mm -hmm. In-district, it's you, you got to handle Debbie with more kid gloves. You just do. Because even like you said, going after her, even just pointing out she takes this money and made this vote. Like we're talking factual information. You're seen as bullying. You're seeing as why don't you just go go find a seat where there's a Republican? Why are you challenging a perfectly good Democrat? And you get that they close ranks. They do. And especially and I hate to say it, but it's generational. It really is. You're older sort of centrist blue Democrats, they are just, they are clinging on for dear life to everything to, to be exactly as they know it. And they're just not capable of seeing past that. So it's unfortunate, but I, I got to say the way that this changes is more of them have to die off yeah. and more young people have to come in. And, and we're sort of at that, almost at that turning point, we're going to see if we're quite there, but that's what it feels like to me. One of those balance things where at some point it just goes and we're, we're almost there, but when we're talking about her to most people that are not the insider, but the problem is those insider people are also our super voters in this district. So we got to handle it carefully. But most people support term limits. Most people are sick and tired of the politics in this country, hands down. Across parties, no party, most people actually do support the, the premise of out with the old, in with the new. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a matter of how many of the dinosaurs, the insider dinosaurs, how many more need to die off before there's more of us than them. Mm -hmm. And I also imagine that you're not taking anyone for granted as, and, and, and I, or you're willing to expand the number of people or imagine that people could vote for you who maybe Debbie Wasserman Schultz wouldn't go after. And, and what I mean by that is to say, Debbie's been elected countless times she knows those voters are out there that are going to give her um an election but but being someone who's who's challenging you know you have to find those voters who aren't for debbie uh, and they're people who have written her off 
Um, and they might not be exactly like down the line liberal or Democrat on all these issues, but they might be more receptive to you than they would be any of these other candidates. Oh, I've had I've had success. You know, we live in a closed primary state. So in order to vote for me, people have to be registered as a Democrat by July 20th. So we have this extra hurdle. If we had open primaries, she would have been gone 10 years ago, no doubt. I've had a very good amount of success, um, more so with no party affiliations, but even to some extent getting Republicans to understand that they need to switch over to vote for me. It takes a few minutes. We have the link on our website. They switch over. You can vote for me. And you switch right back. So, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's again, it's about educating people that the reason you are stuck with this incumbent is because of a gerrymandered district in a closed primary to the point where the only way to beat her is in a closed primary. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. That's how she's kept herself so insulated. And that's the system that we're up against. It's just so inherently set up to protect the status quo. Yeah, and if I recall, she was opposed to open primaries pretty aggressively during 2016, which is... Oh, she's opposed to... She she has some nerve because I recently saw her in a panel discussion talking about the problem with gerrymandering. She and Mario Diaz-Balart are the two people that gerrymandered our districts to look as ridiculous as they do so that he would have a safe red and she'd be in a safe blue. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet she – so, you know, yeah, she's – of course she's against open primaries. She would have been gone for so long ago. I mean it's not – and she knows that. Mm-hmm. We have closed primaries in August in Florida. Mm-hmm. Y- you couldn't find a more of a way to keep people from voting in an election than to do it like that. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't come up with a better way to stifle voting just from the nature of the election than exactly how it is in Florida. When, uh, just to be clear, before I get off, when's primary day for you? And and um, I guess um, what's your what's your objective? Like, I mean, obviously you want to win, but like, where what do you see your focus being from from now until that election day? We we are heavily focusing on. I mean, we've got a very good phone banking um, and text banking game going right now. Obviously, canvassing has taken a hit since COVID. We are doing some canvassing. We are doing door hangers, but we are heavily canvassing small businesses. And the, the, the interesting thing about that is it's, it's sort of a win-win. We go into small businesses. We meet the business owners. We meet the people that work there. Sometimes they, people live in districts. Sometimes they don't, but their customers are usually in districts. And, the, and then the other win is we then promote that business. Okay. So we've been... One of the things I feel like we've been doing is I've considered this to be a service campaign the whole time. I do food distributions. We did veterans nursing home. We did park cleanups, beach cleanups. This campaign, GenCorps, has been a service organization from the beginning. All my volunteers do service. But really now I'm starting to see other ways to serve in that us going out during a pandemic when small businesses are hurting the most and doing the best we can to help promote small businesses in its way is really something that we're doing to contribute. I, I think it's been pretty helpful. Thank you for listening to our interview with Jen Perelman. If you enjoyed the interview, please become a patron of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. This episode was released early to patrons of the show, and patrons of the show get early access to our episodes. 
they get access to exclusive content and we are the first to include you in our live stream episodes when we do those reaching out to our patrons letting them know that they can ask us questions submit comments and uh, we feed off of what our patrons have for us and uh, create the show we build a community so if you can become a patron go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure we'll be back soon with another episode